A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the AEW Dynamite Review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by the Dudley Boys of What Culture, Michael Hamblot and Michael Sidgwick, here to review everything that happened on last night's episode of AEW Dynamite. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts. We're not a new review AEW Dynamite, but also Raw, SmackDown, NXT, pay reviews. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a roundup of the week complete with a bloody good quiz, of course on WrestleCulture. As I say, they're joined by Hamlin and Sidgwick to review AEW Dynamite and a show quite clearly on the road to a pay-per-view last night, Sidge. Indeed. Um, I wrote on Twitter that this episode of Dynamite wired more explosives than detonated them. Mm-hmm. There were some really strong matches. Nothing that would like trouble any TV match of the year honours, but like some really strong matches. But it was a go-home. It was a big sell. And ultimately, I emerged from it wishing that there wasn't another Dynamite not just because next week's doesn't look altogether that hot, to be perfectly honest. I expect it to be similarly um, storyline and angle heavy, but I don't know if it was just the fact that the card was finalized. We got so many nice angles and promos building towards it. I just want to, I just want double or nothing to be this weekend. Hmm. I understand why they are building that anticipation now because Friday's show is going up against SmackDown and will in all likelihood get destroyed but this was as good a go-home show as they've done. Um, and it wasn't because there were certain things that they need a big angle to sell, namely one of the most important matches on the card, that being the three-way title match. Um, but still, this was very much go-home flavoured, and I just want the show to be here now, which is an indication of its quality. Next Is next week's Dynamite the Friday one? The Friday one. So they've not got a Wednesday one left. They've got already kind of like a, a bit of a challenging situation for them in that it's a different night of the week. They know they're potentially going to not have the viewer base they would traditionally for a Wednesday night. So this, I guess, was like, was in effect the go-home because next Friday is almost doesn't count as such. I am, I, I was a little bit bored, if I'm being honest, as a two-hour show. This wasn't bad. Um, it just didn't come anywhere close to meeting the expectations I got for a standard Dynamite because even when they build things up. Typically, there's something that you can have as a bit of a takeaway. Um, we're spoiled, you know, like there was three, I would say, four-star television matches on last week's episode alone. And last week's episode had two of probably my least favourite Dynamite segments ever. Um, so, like, even on episodes like that, there's, like, so much good stuff that it does become, the, the expectation level does get higher. Um, I don't think there was met here. And to be honest, where I just disagree slightly with what Sidgwick said, like, I'm not, maybe it's being led by this triple threat, but I'm not as up for double or nothing as I thought I would be. I have absolute faith that, that pay per view will deliver on the night. Um, all out 2020 
feels mostly an aberration. I didn't think Revolution was an amazing show, but I thought it was a pretty good one. Um, but they've done a really good job of the quarterly pay-per-view cycle, getting you hyped for sure all over again. You'll forgive the sins of the exploding bar by deathmatch or Matt Hardy's near-death experience or whatever, because every time it comes around, you're buzzing again. I personally thought they'd be a little bit more direct in their in the ways and the ways and methods in which they got me excited. Maybe it was the lack of a big angle. Maybe that was what I was like reaching for here that I, I didn't feel like I got. I think one of the reasons just to finalize this point before we get into the show itself, that I'm hyped for this show. It sounds like feigned praise, and maybe to an extent it is. There are certain matches on this show that I just can't imagine going particularly long when they don't need to. Mm. Cody versus a go-go isn't going to go that long. It would expose a go-go who hasn't really worked that many matches. Page versus Cage, that shouldn't go 15 minutes. It should be an explosive 10 to 12 minute. Um, Sheeta Baker, 15 maximum. Um, I just feel like they're finally going to get the little flabby elements mm. that are halfway marred, even the better pay-per-views. Um, Archer versus Miro, that's got a 10-minute slap written all over it. Like, I just think that not only are the match lengths or what I perceive are going to be the match lengths are appealing to me, but I just feel like between the fact that Archer versus Miro is going to be a big hoss fest, they're going to go big time with the presentation of a go-go Cody for a big fight feel. Just I'm loving the Moxley, Kingston, Young Bucks build because you've got two just totally beloved folk heroes at once when you didn't think wrestling was capable of producing them anymore against the most obnoxious rich bastards imaginable. You've got the incredibly popular Orange Cassidy who is going to do popular things within a banger. It just feels like they are absolutely building towards an absolute crowd pleaser in front of the first pay-per-view in a year, over a year, in front of crowds. I feel like even if the build wasn't necessarily outstanding what i can forecast of this pay-per-view i feel like it's all going to be worth it on the night it's a hell of a way to address a like a direct criticism of aw pay-per-views as well isn't it because as you say even on the great shows that that complaint has lingered i think so like what a perfect show to to hit that specific audience complaint is when you've already got what is it five thousand people in daily's place is it 5500 so, selling out so like they're going to be buzzed for out like as you would be, um, but if you're satisfying your paying audience at home all that more, um, it's a yeah, it's a good opportunity to address that niggle that I think has existed through almost every show. Yeah, I completely agree. Like probably, I'm assuming like an eight match main card. Maybe put the Casino Battle Royal on the the kickoff show, whatever they call it, depending on who the the Joker is, of course. Um, it's a great lead-in, I think that and. Uh, yeah, that's always been my issue with AEW. And it's, you know, sometimes it's it's purely because we're watching it at 5 a.m. in UK time or whatever it may be. But I, I agree, there's some matches you can go, right, obviously Stadium Stampede's going to be a while and you want to give, like, say, Moxie and Kingston and the Bucks plenty of time. But there's like almost half of the matches on that card. Like you say, you can put, you can say maximum 15 minutes you need for this uh, and some of them even less than that. So intriguing to see what they do on the night for that. And uh, as part of the build-up for that, of course, we started the show last night with Christian Cage versus Matt Seidel. Uh, they opened the show. The story of this match was Christian Cage just battering uh, Seidel's back. He hit him with a backbreaker, he hit him with stonks, he kicked him. Uh, Seidel eventually fought back, hit a hurricane runner, hit a spin kick, 
fights out of a superplex. It's a, it's a Meteora for a two count. Uh, really like the bit where Seidel dodged a spear, then hit a sunset flip for a near fall. Then a succession of them both missing moves, basically. Uh, Christian missed a frog splash. Seidel missed a moonsault. Christian hit him with his spear, but Seidel then blocks the kill switch attempt, uh, goes for the standing shooting star, but Cage uh, gets his knees up, hits the kill switch. One, two, three, post-match. Nice bit of respect from both gentlemen. That wasn't to last very long, though, because Ricky Starks looks like an absolute piece. He came out. Uh, he looked like he walked out of the 90s dressed as The Rock, basically. Uh, he cuts this promo. He said, look, said to Christian, I'm my own man. I'll be on the sidelines for a while, though. And he gestures to the entrance. You assume Team Taz is going to come out there. Nope. They jump Christian and Seidel from behind. Hook hit, just murked uh, Matt Seidel as part of this attack. Um, so they're beating them down. Numbers game, obviously. Hangman Page walks out to, to make the save and hangs hands Ricky Starks his whiskey, comes down, uh, has a back and forth with Brian Cage, goes for the bookshot lariat. Uh, Brian Cage blocks that. Then Page blocks a drill claw from Cage. But eventually, as I said, the numbers just catch up to both men. Uh, and Cage, that being, keeping up, Brian Cage, I mean, uh, hits Hangman Page with the uh, power bomb and Team Taz stand tall. So sort of a two-parter to, uh, to start the show. Sige, what did you make of the match and the post-match beatdown? I really liked those thrilling glimpses of the Page Cage, Brian Cage exchanges, probably more than I did the match, which uh, it was like, it was really good. It was really good. It was, this is going to sound like a backhanded compliment, and it probably is. It was Christian's bread and butter, this. Uh, it really was. I liked it fine. It was probably very good. I would put it like a quarter star above the gentleman's three. Because um, it was paced like immaculately, some of the work was really creative. Christian is just very, 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 very good at constructing a TV match, but it wasn't this sort of vibrant, energetic, state-of-the-art fair you've come to expect from Dynamite. And we've talked before about how Christian Cage is going to complement that and rein in some of the spotty elements you get from certain ten-man tags you see on Dynamite but it wasn't something I can like do cartwheels over as tidy as it was. I did like Christian playing quasi heel. I think it worked for that particular dynamic. It would just be odd to see the more exciting um, wrestler of the two working babyface. I think it was pitched perfectly for what it was. And without just blowing me away, my big takeaway was I would like to see Christian work people who aren't in Christian's generation. Hmm. I would like to see him work heel in about six months' time after he fails to beat Kenny Omega for the title. Bit of character direction subsequent to that. I'd love to see Christian Cage versus Jungle Boy. Mm. I'd love to see Christian Cage versus John Silver. This was a fine match that would have blown me away in the years before New Japan rose to prominence and All In happened and AEW became a thing. I would have been blown away had this happened on Superstars. It would be like one of those sleeper gems like Kendrick used to work on Velocity. Paul London used to work on Velocity. Um, it would just be one of those, I oh, remember that, that ridiculous match on Superstars that was better than some of the stuff they did on pay-per-view uh, about 10, nine years ago. That's what the match was. Yeah. There's a really fine line with Christian, isn't it, between that 
added heft and credibility versus you kind of like it's a funny you said bread and butter because I was going to say like to meet and drink home win this type of match for Christian but like it's, that's even like in football and even when it's your team rarely do you get excited about that type of phrasing like that if you've said that to somebody they're not going to watch the highlights of the game or match of the day um, and I think that's perhaps the tightrope that they're going to consistently walk with Christian definitely when he's a baby face less so when he's a heel because we know the type of character he can tap into as a heel and yeah to echo Sidgwick's point the time is probably now as soon as this feels the time is probably now to have Christian feel more like an alien on AEW and by that what I mean is wrestling the people that you just never imagined it would happen because back in January you never knew that he was going to wrestle again I am strangely enough, more excited about Christian entering a battle royal because of the punches he's going to exchange with these new faces than I was hyped for either a match with Kaz or a match with Matt Seidel. Um, because that, like, I'm going to enjoy what's coming, but I knew what was coming. I kind of don't know what to expect out of Christian in this battle royal because I just want to see the visual of him working with it. That was the appeal of him going to TNA, genuinely. Like, that was the sort of... TNA could absolutely, like, present this as a scalp, but ultimately it was like... Christian wants to work with AJ Styles, you know, he wants to work with Christopher Daniels, he wants to see what, like, what all this, like, noisy neighbour stuff is all about, and I think that's kind of what they need to recreate with Christian to get the absolute best out of him, Um, which is why, like, I think I like the post-match more than the match. It was all, like, very functional, but AEW does functional really well, because it gives you the added details, like Hangman Page handing the drink off, um, like how vicious Brian Cage's powerbomb is, Um. We are tiptoeing ever closer to the cage page, cage page four way. I think we all want with Ethan Page on the side. Um, I can't decide if that makes a mockery of Vincent Mann's obsession with similar names or like sort of justifies it because even in your recap, it's a bit like Brian Cage, Hangman Page. Like maybe sometimes that mad old bastard's got a point, but at least once I do want the four way. Like for the partner, you've got every all of us talk about this as a community. Like, and we all do it. It's like page, cage, like they've got to do that match at least once. DDP is the send Jim Ross like back to his Vietnam headspace. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not pronoun boy. Remember that on a dynamite, I think it was early 2020, he seemed to suffer a flashback to what he was called through the headset by Vince McMahon. He said, I'm not pronoun boy. And I'm thinking, has Vince McMahon been calling you pronoun boy through the headset all the time? Because <laughs> that's horrible. Oh, Don't no, laugh, Hamza. Don't laugh I'm at pronoun boy. It's, I'm laughing at Jim Ross getting his... Like, Conrad calls him red-ass JR on his podcast when he loses it. <laughs> Just goes off on a tangent shouting at nobody. Like, and it's like, anyway, Jim, I was asking you about uh, Sean and Brett in 96. <laughs> not lining up on Dynamite. I'm just trying to tell the guys how to work. All right. Oh, <laughs> Just stand there. <laughs> just reminds me of that vine that does. Hey, uh, what, uh, what, where, 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 what fireworks are you going to be buying? Wouldn't you like to know, weather boy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, we had a, a series of promos next. Uh, Vasty Blondes ahead of their title match uh, later on. Cut a promo. Brian Pillman Jr. talked about his dad. Uh, said his father was the reason he stayed away from wrestling until he met the Young Bucks and gained hope that he could be in the business the right way 
Griff Garrison talked about how he was at, how he was asked to man the books as merch table and but how have they changed and they need a reality check in the form of them winning the tag tiles. Then we got uh, a couple of promos from the acclaimed and, and Moxley and Kingston. Moxley and Kingston did the great back and forth. They're like one of them's a rapper and the other one's a rapper's friend. And uh, was that was that a really nice nod to New? Jersey? I thought that. Yeah, I thought that. You know, because obviously everybody knows he was Denzel's friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, he uh they talk they, they're sort of confused as to what a super kick party is do they need to bring super kicks do they need to throw super kicks to to be a part of the party either way they went oh by the way we're gonna beat the brakes off the acclaimed the acclaimed cut a promo but never mind all that i do i'm, I'm rushing ahead here because i want to get to what mike's cast has said about john moxley's wife <laughs> jesus christ max what were you thinking he comes down uh, he talks about paradigm shift and uh, these two get each other Valentine's Day gifts. He says uh, Eddie Kingston dresses like, a, I think it's a, it was a box of cigarettes he compared him to. It doesn't matter. None of that matters because he said that Moxie's wife had been up in his mentions trying to hit him up for some oral sessions. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So good that there was a niggling element of homophobia to the first thing that he said. Like, is partner's openly gay hmm. so i'd like to think that he's like way more chill out about it than we might be on this podcast but that second line was so good that's all right don't you know it was probably a bit bad because that was just so funny like it was right there the whole time it well, was right there the whole time and what's even better um is that john moxley and eddie kingston are such heart on sleeve wonderful folk hero men that there's loads of things that they hold dear to them that they could have nailed in oral sessions was right there the whole time. It made me think of obviously John Moxley and Renee Paquette like living the greatest life because they're the greatest people in the kitchen. And she says, Oh, I've got a new podcast starting. Oh, what's it called? The oral sessions. And Moxley even then going, Yeah, somebody's gonna score on me for that one day. Thanks very much. Like there, and they'll be like, Well, that's that's perfect. Like that's gonna be ideal when it happens. Um, oh, class. But like, as you say, like, glad they went there, but Christ, the places they could have gone. What that says about the kind of the baby faces at Moxley and Kingston are. That promo, that, like, this um, new hour, this rampage, is it just going to be this for an hour? Because I think it stands a hell of a chance of doing, like, doing well in the ratings if you just give Moxley and Kingston, like, this much profile. Like, I couldn't get enough. Like, the whole should have put that on Dynamite. At this point, like Moxie and Kingston will never be on being the elite, will they? They're like this sort of stuff, or like or road to or whatever. Like there, then there's never going to be a debate that these kind of promos don't have to exist every single week because you just kind of get enough of them. Also, there's the age old phrase, of course, like your mouth is cashing checks that your ass can cash. Well, Max Caster wrote a check that poor Anthony Bowen's had to cash. <laughs> Anthony Bowen gets in, he's like, ladies and gentlemen, do you clap up? And he gets his head kicked immediately. <laughs> uh, Moxley attacks him, the match starts, uh, Moxley and uh, Caster then start going at it. Moxley's just battering him with forearm strikes, understandably, off the back of that. Uh, Kingston hit comes in, he hits an STO, hits a delayed vertical suplex. Uh, after the break, Hot tag to Moxley, German suplex, pile driver on Caster, chokes Bowens out with a sleeper on the apron. 
but then Bowens comes back and cuts Mox off on the top rope. So Caster can hit a superplex. Bowens hits Moxley with a crossbody for the near fall with Kingston diving in to make the save. Then, then they try and cheat. Caster throws a chain to Bowens, but the ref sees it. Ref grabs the chain, but it's all part of a distraction piece. They're going to twat him with the boom box. But uh, Kingston, that is. But uh, Moxley blocks it. He hits Matt Caster with it. Uh, and then they uh, hit... It's a wheelbarrow paradigm shift is the best way of putting it, I suppose. Uh, Kingston wheelbarrows uh, Bowens into a paradigm shift and they pin them to win the match. Really enjoyable, this one, Hamphlet. Yeah. Um, I like the finish a lot because I think it was important to establish a proper double team like like finisher for the pair of them ahead of the match against the Young Bucks. It's, it's the Young Bucks stock in trade. It's double team moves like that. And Kingston Moxley have basically got two, maybe, maybe three um, that they can do against them. So, like, I, I love that they're just solidifying themselves. It's not just a rankings thing. It's also a thing like, oh, we can also be a great tag team. It's not just about our past and our, like, emotional connection. We can do it in the ring too. And the, the Young Bucks should be concerned about that. Um, I, I wasn't mega high on the match. Liked it, didn't love it. Like, I knew there'd be a Styles clash but I didn't expect it to kind of affect my enjoyment of it in the way it did. I didn't really buy um, the, uh, like I love the acclaimed, uh, but I didn't particularly buy the heat segment here. Um, I just, I just don't think Kingston and Moxley are those type of baby faces, Moxley in particular to be set up for the likes of the, I don't know, like the suplex um, and then being able to like, like the heels being able to escape those little, those little like the attempts at the, uh, the paradigm shift or whatever. It just, Teams didn't mesh as well as I was expecting them to, although really it was all about that anticipation of the match caster promo and that delivered. Mm. So I like I'm tempted to give the like the whole thing a pass, but the match just fell a little bit short of my expectations. I think maybe sometimes like it's it's not the fault of AEW, but they do such a good job. I said this on the preview yesterday, they do an amazing job of establishing these characters. And characters is what it's all about. The acclaimed are here because these promos were just getting people talking every single week. And you can't just leave them on dark or dark elevation. They've got to exist on dynamite. And it just happens that I don't think the work is maybe up to the standard of some other teams. So where I didn't think this necessarily worked bell to bell, I don't hold it against AW or the acclaimed for going for it. I had no expectations of anything other than the most fun, the fun three, right? That we talked about the gentlemen's three and how, right, okay, yeah. It's a really intricate work in that match and you worked really hard about <laughs> board this. This <laughs> is the fun three. Absolutely no pretensions of being this blow away match, it didn't it shouldn't have been because he shouldn't have given the acclaimed that much. Um, I just had a lot of fun watching a match I wasn't prepared to accept as anything other than that. The timing of John Moxley, it was it was AEW, it was when he was about to do his whole AEW, we are the acclaimed bit. And the second the whoop escaped from his mouth, he's got absolutely clattered in the temple. <laughs> the timing of that was superb. The match was just a bit of fun possibly aimless in its story and a bit, right, okay, let's just have a competitive little match and we're built towards the finish because that's the most important thing. But beneath the, just the fun factor and the entertainment factor of the dynamic and the chicanery and the finish and how they avenge them trying to cheat, quietly clever details. You don't really associate John Moxley with being the most intelligent character because intelligent is kind of sort of, inextricably linked to pretension. And the last thing you want to think of John Moxley as is pretentious. And yet he's an extremely, extremely clever bloke between this match and the match against Nakazawa and Omega. 
what they've done is they've established two double team finishes. There was the lariat into the cycle mm-hmm. suplex, I think it was. And now we've got the wheelbarrow into the um, paradigm shift that finished this match off tonight. So what you've done is you've created the illusion that they're a tag team. And there's no real need to because look at them. They belong together. That's the, the perfect part of the chemistry. What they've done through two TV matches that essentially only functioned to build them as credible challengers. And, you know, you've got Omega, a team in the rankings. It's all worked for me on that level. But what you've done is you've foreshadowed a finish and you've bought yourself a proper great near fall in the match at double or nothing. Um, and that match at double or nothing, I'm so up for. I've loved the build of this. I loved the finish of the main event. And it's one of those where it's like, I'm going to be a little bit heartbroken if Moxley and Kingston don't win. But how fun will the Young Bucks be if, in fact, they don't? I'm completely conflicted on who should and who will win. And I think that's just a measure of really good booking and really good character work. Yeah, you could say neither team is a shoe in for victory. Uh, double or nothing. Uh, right now, it's all backstage segments with Chris Jericho and Dean Malenko. Marvez shows up, asked if Jericho was going to, uh, or the inner circle was going to accept the Pinnacles challenge. Uh, and he just said, piss off and wait, basically. <laughs> he said, I'll, yeah, I'll tell you in a bit. Um, you don't want to make the man of a thousand holds angry. And then they say, oh, well, man, men of 2004 holds or whatever it is combined. Uh, and Jericho says he's forgotten a few. Love that. Yeah, yeah any, amazing. Any shred of Chris Jericho having a sense of self-awareness is kind of crucial. <laughs> like it really is. <laughs> it can descend quite horrendously into parody at times. And I still don't like it. And I know I'm jumping ahead. But when he smiles at the hard camera behind which is nothing on these tape, tape shows, just like receiving thousands of people in his head. <laughs> Judas in my mind is way too literal. Yeah, it's always fun when he says, right, I'm a bit of a brawler these days, but that's fine. It works for me. Just oh, thank you. Thank you for having a shred of that. Uh, then we got uh, Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page cutting a promo, calling out Darby Allen and Sting. Uh, Scorpio Sky talked about when he was uh, looking up to Sting as a child, then something happened. Time! Sting's not the man he used to be, and Sky is no longer a child, but rather a grown man warning Sting to step aside before he puts him down. Page grabs the mic from Shivoni Shivon- and uh, takes over the interview. Uh, he says Scorpio can already prove that he uh, put Sting down by heel hooking him so much that he missed a week of dynamite. And uh, he hopes that the Stinger was watching when he threw Darby Allen down the steps. He said, you know, you know, it wasn't the be all and end all. Miro kicked his head in, but he kind of t- wants to take credit for Darby Allen losing the title. Uh, Ethan Page is here to take everything away from Darby Allen and he will be the nail in his coffin. Sting's music hits. Uh, he comes out, so does Darby Allen, uh, and they take on and lay out uh, Sky and Page. Sting puts uh, Scorpio Sky in a scorpion deathlock, makes him tap out. Darby Allen holds uh, Page at bay with, uh, with a skateboard, twats him with it a few times just for good measure. And then Sky and Page trying to escape down the tunnel when out come the Dark Order to chase them away just out of the arena, basically. And I'm going to group this in with what happened later on, Sige. The announcement that Six years after his last live match, Sting's going to be back in action at Double or Nothing. What do you think to that news and, of course, to this promo? I'm completely and utterly reassured that they will nail this Sting live match. Absolutely. like They've developed this really impossible reputation 
as doing that which WWE excelled for years under Pat Patterson's just incredible, incredible learning tree. The smoke and mirrors of how to put together a match with resources that don't necessarily add up to one unless you've got a great mind to patch it all together. And we saw that with the Shark match. Um, we've seen it in various forms with a Tully match, for example. Like they just know wrestling and they know that they're not going to have Sting possibly in the match much. There's going to be an attack before the bell. I've got no doubts whatsoever that they are going to nail this with Sting. I love the fact they're doing it at the first live show back. Again, it's that what they're doing with Double or Nothing is if this was a card and it was in the old world and they built these matches up in this way in normal conditions, you'd probably think, ah, it's not quite as good as Full Gear 2020 this on paper. Not quite as good as Revolution 2020 this on paper. They've teed up several proper crowd-pleasing moments. Casty in the main event, Hoss fights, big fight feels, and Sting doing it live. So I was just really impressed by how all of this has led to this at this exact point. Um, Scorpio Sky continues to do very little for me as a heel promo, like almost next to nothing. In contrast, Ethan Page, they're finally doing something with him mm. that it finally feels like I can feel something for him between the Derby attack and this promo, which I thought was great for what it was. Wild eyes. His facial expressions were great. He did three properly great heel things over the course of like literally one minute here. I thought it was incredibly strong. First thing he does is tell Shivani to piss off. You do not (laughs) do that. He is like the godfather, the beloved avuncular nostalgic presence. So he pisses you off doing that. He takes credit and basically says, I'm kind of the real TNT champion, but doesn't do it in a way that detracts from Miro. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's just my Vince McMahon used to bark carnival stuff at me when I was six. (laughs) And I used to receive that as, oh, that's what powerful people sound like. The shout at the end, I've buried T-Bar on the Raw review for emphasizing every word. It's like, well, you just sound like a tit. It's a classic technique. It's like you shout the last thing. And nail in the coffin is a cliched line until you remember how much Darby Allen draws on that imagery and his character is someone who's bound for it like way earlier than most people would like with how reckless he is. I just thought, honestly, if you examine that, it's a proper maximize your minutes performance from Ethan Page. I was hugely impressed by him. Hamlet does not agree. <laughs> I can tell by his bloody face. Was it um, staring at me ahead of an NXT UK title defense that nobody watches? <laughs> I'm buying up for the hot tag. I'm buying up for Sting's hot tag. Um, TNA were brilliant at this. Like they knew, especially towards the end, um, how to extract that response. And in terms of, as Sidney points out, like it's a bit, you know, like like with WrestleMania, you're looking for the things that are going to like remind you most that the fans are back and are going to like try and stitch together your fractured relationship with pro wrestling because now the crowd are back and it's going to remind you what, what you fell in love with in the first place. Um, Sting's hot pop, Sting's hot tag pop, the bit in the match, whatever it turns out to be, is going to be one of them across the night. It's going to be one of them, just feels like one of the things that you're going to remember. I also think that this is going to be, um, this is going to contribute to the Darby Allen made man project of like of 2021. Like he doesn't need this specific rub, but he's going to get it anyway. And it's only going to enhance what the last Sting tag match did and what the TNT title run has done for Darby Allen. 
he feels as good as a headliner, like like mission accomplished for Darby Allen. And this match alone, he sort of further cement that. I thought this whole thing was like really pedestrian. I didn't get any of those vibes off Ethan Page at all, if I'm honest. I also, I, I do agree on the fact that Scorpio Sky is not it for me. Um, these guys feel like total second rate Team Taz members in a match that until the night feels like a second rate Team Taz feud. Um, I continue to be a little bit disappointed with how they approach the creative with Sting on a week to week basis. Um, there's very little that Sting does that I care about as it's happening. It's always more about what I'm speculating on. Um, Brian Cage's powerbomb feels like the rule proven exception, like the week that you kind of crumpled to the mat. Um, like I really like that. I was kind of, I wasn't as high on him, like powering Darby Allen up last week, but that was quite cute, I guess. Um, Mythical power. Yeah. Like I can allow for some of that, I guess, but like, otherwise like this just doesn't do it for me. Like our outcome sting the heels either fear him and run away or get beaten up by him. I, I just, I think there's more to it. I think there's more meat on the bones. He's 60, 61. He's 61. The face paint covers some of it, but the rest doesn't. Like, I, I don't know. It, it just doesn't, this sort of stuff doesn't land with me. And as I, I honestly cannot wait for that bit of that match at Double or Nothing. But the rest of this, um, it's the total opposite of the Young Bucks, Moxley and Kingston match. Feels totally predictable. Sky and Page feel disposable. Ethan Page feels like a feels like the signing of Ethan Page. This is not a criticism of him, but it just feels like a bit excessive at the moment. Like I'm not sure if this is what, like, what people what people that loved him in Impact would have been hoping for upon having him arrive in AEW. And it's just like, yeah, I, think, I, I thought this was a little bit WWE. Like we're at, we're at the pay per view. Like this this like go home stuff. Or like let's have a let's have a, a bit of a chat and a beatdown segment. I just wasn't like terribly moved by much of it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Next up, we got a sneak peek as to what it's going to look like when myself and the Dadly Boys go out for a meal after the ongoing global bust is over, disguised as a pinnacle segment. <laughs> they were in a restaurant. Wardlow was drinking wine straight from the bottle. Uh, and MJF, oh, he's just furious. He's just, he's just, Chris Jericho is just so funny, isn't he? With uh, my jerk-off friend and pineapple Peter. I hope you have a good laugh. I hope you laugh yourself silly because I always get the last laugh. That's basically what he's implying here. Yeah, Dax Harwood uh, complains about the fact they've got to waste their time beating the inner circle up instead of claiming all the gold in AEW. Happy that they sort of touched on that there. Uh, he said last year, Stadium Stampede was a dog and pony show, but this year they are in control. And he said that Jericho has been making a mockery of, of wrestling for 30 years. In the midst of all this, the waiter is going around and filling up the wine glasses and sort of mugging off Sean Spears, if I'm perfectly honest. So he snaps, he grabs the waiter, he smashes the bottle, he slams the waiter's face on the table, and they calm him down till he hoists some money at him to make the problems go away, basically. And MJF closes this segment by saying, when you're with the pinnacle, you're always on top. What do you think of this response to the bubbly bath last week, uh, Hamlet? All right. Um... MJF's delivery was great. It always is. Um, he makes most things more credible, uh, including this. Like, I really enjoyed the physical comedy of Sean Spears. I liked how all of this looked. Um, yeah. I, I believed it, which is really important because sometimes these, obviously, set pieces feel like a set piece and they feel too staged. So I, I bought into the aesthetic, which I think is important. Um, it was a fine response to some lousy comedy. Um, but not for the first time. Like you're kind of asking yourself, why do the lousy comedy? And then think you have to do the response. I'd, like with 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 two weeks removed from blood and guts, and like this is kind. This is what the pinnacle are doing. I still personally believe that the, all of this, and I include the inner circle promo later on the show, is starting to stand as a monument to where blood and guts failed. Um, and it's going to take a really really good, and I think they can do it. A really really good stadium stampede match to get this whole thing back on track. This was this was absolutely fine, but ironically, considering what they're called, none of it feels like the pinnacle of the angle, and it's probably where they should be. This had a certain thing to accomplish, and I thought it accomplished it in perfectly passable fashion, but it was quite important. The idea is you need to set an expectation to your paying public of what this second stadium stampede match is going to be. You're not going to get these fun comedy spots. You're going to get a completely different, gnarly, bloody match that I still don't know how they're going to pull it off, but I'm an analyst. I'm not creative. Um, but it was fundamentally important to set expectations for the pay-per-view. And not only that, but it was pivotal for this dynamic. Every time it's hovered towards celebrity tie-in or comedy, it just undermines the appeal and the purpose of the pinnacle. So not only have they crafted a little segment here, which is nice, had little moments of character um, within it. They're really good at that. They are really good at just these, these little tiny details. I often call them the details company. Wardlow doing the drink, Spears, yeah, it was all of those things. But at the core, this had to be, right, Stadium Stampede 2 is not going to be the match you want it to be. And the reason why it's not going to be the match that you want it to be is because the pinnacle will get further devalued and it will not maximise how great they are in theory if, in fact, it's going to be a comedy match. So it just needed to be what it was. 
And we got uh, Rebel versus Hikaru Shida. Uh, initially, Shida obviously takes control, puts boots to the injured knee of Rebel, who's still bringing the crutch to ringside at the very least. Uh, Rebel immediately pops up and does some jumping jacks to show that she's absolutely fine. Uh, in the end, though, Shida obviously just beats her down, batters her all over the place, uh, teasers using Baker's own lockjaw, putting the glove on and everything uh, to finish the match. But Baker takes the ref. Rebel hits Shida with the crutch, uh, hits a suplex. Shida kicks out, but Shida eventually fights back, gets her in the stretch muffler, gets a submission victory. Immediately, obviously, Baker slides in, uh, attacks Shida, hits the curb stomp onto the title belt and stands tall. What do you make of this, Sige? I think it was so unremarkable and boilerplate that a thought from the previous Pinnacle segment entered my head when <laughs> we were going through the rundown. When Hamlet said he believed it, I've got another point to make to agree with that. When MJF said, I always have the last laugh, I absolutely believe that. And I think that's such a testament to how well they've built him as this just incredible villain manipulator character. So his words had all the credibility that hoisted that segment over the line. In terms of Reba, not Rebel, or Rebel, not Reba versus Akaru Shida, like, just hated the the disturbance of vague comedy or heat because it just felt like Hikaru Shida needed so much more than this booking to feel remotely like someone who isn't just bound to lose this title. It felt like a needless and like quite obvious setup as well. Like if I was Shida, I'd be like, well, Baker's going to be there at ringside and I've got no one there to help me. Like, it doesn't matter if I beat Rebel or not, does it really? Yeah, it just felt like pretext to do the post-match angle, yeah. which realistically at this point you'd need not to do. All of the heats on Baker, all of the momentum is with Baker. You do not need to keep Baker strong, particularly since this program now has reached a point where if Baker doesn't win because they've booked her so goddamn well and because she's drenched right now in confidence that they in the event that they subvert those expectations and put Sheeta over, people are going to resent Sheeta for winning as the babyface because Britt Baker's too great an act not to strap up at this point. So if anything, you want to do your level best to create the illusion that Hikaru Sheeta is going to win this match. You didn't need to put the heat on Baker here. You absolutely didn't need to do it in the context of like a nothing match comedy elements that we don't need. This needs to have a big fight feel, and I just think this was just bad. Yeah, it was pretty rubbish, this. Um, it's, so it's like a year of Sheeta as champion as well, and I think it speaks to how this like that year has been, that this, this isn't more of a toasted thing. It isn't more of a celebrated mm. like part of Sheeta's act. Um, you couldn't make the... Uh, like that graphic that they threw up of the Ilsha Rice scalps before the Raquel Gonzalez loss. You, you couldn't, you could obviously, because you can put her opponents up there, but nobody would feel mm. anything from much of those because there's not much to remember from it. Um, I've tried like to be as consistent as I can as like when it comes to AEW's women's division. And my issue has always been, I'd like to think, if you went back and listened to these podcasts, I struggle to picture the, and it is mostly men, the men backstage coming together and spending as much time on these segments as they do the others or their own. And like, that was always for me, the ugliest bit about where this division was going wrong. 
and there was far too many echoes of that here. This is a big match. They've got a big match with Britt Baker and Hikaru Shida. And especially when it comes to Britt Baker, they've done the work to make it feel big. And then yet again, I'm kind of picturing that round table of like, oh, well, we haven't got much time left. We best get to the women's segment, you know? Like, that's what a segment like this projects to me about the thought that they're putting into this particular match. And when they've blown it before, it's almost like, well, it wasn't like there was much build there to speak of. They've had this, and they're kind of on the verge of losing it. Sidrick's made a great point there as well about the, the Shida win. Not that it's going to happen, but Christ the reaction if it does, because they've leaned in so hard on the Britt Baker end of this. Like they've they've continued. We said this weeks ago when the when the match was as good as announced. It's like right now's the time to not do Shida dirty, and I sort of have. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's a real shame. It'll be all right on the night, but like they, they kind of can't keep getting away with that. I don't think. Uh, right. Kenny Omega and Don Callis uh, go into, uh, or show, they show footage of him, go, them going into the, the trainer room to uh, to check on Orange Cassidy. They shoo the rest of the best friends out of the room who just stare daggers at them as they walk in. Um, they try to get him to sign a document, basically, which will mean that he backs out of the, the double or nothing triple threat match, but we'll get, we'll get a singles match. When he's, all, when he's all better, he can have his singles match for the title. Don't worry. Uh, Cassidy, of course, sort of slow-mo tears the contract up. Uh, and then Omega, from, from trying to be his best mate and com- comfort him and think of his, think of him, you know, in the in looking looking after him, transforms into saying, you know the damage that that powerbomb's clearly done to you? Do you think I'm going to hold back when I hit the one-winged angel? I'm going to destroy you. He effectively says he may kill him with the one-winged angel. Uh, and Don Callis brings out a second copy of the contract they knew he was going to rip up the first one basically and tells him to to take it away and, and really give it some thought pamphlet your thoughts it's all right it was, it was just all right um cassidy and pack even though yes the rankings like the best thing about cassidy and pack getting the title shot was that hangman page wasn't that's i think my fundamental problem with this build is that what, what that loss that hangman page suffered did was take him out of contention at the worst possible moment that's the coolest thing about this match not that orange cassidy and kenny and pack have been built as challenges for kenny omega kenny omega was feuding with so many people neither of them being orange cassidy and pack so now here we are like a couple of weeks out of a pay-per-view and you're kind of trying to sell a three-way off the back of you know like omega's first panic and then followed by threat i thought the second contract thing was cute I think it's interesting that like they're doing their like they're kind of like the treating Orange Cassidy as like as the kid, as the young punk. It's a bit like Shawn Michaels calling Damian Priest a youngster, isn't it? They're, they're, they're around the same age, and I think that's maybe not the like the best way to treat the Orange Cassidy character. Um just again, like kind of like echo the point. I think the match will be tremendous at the pay for you. I think there'll be loads of fun to be had. Orange Cassidy in a title fight with Pixies and five and a half thousand people in a building. Great, like absolutely brilliant. Packs of Potter. Match of rule. I, I I don't love the build. I don't love the match, like in principle. And I, I did this didn't just like I said at the start. I just this didn't do a lot for me to heighten the anticipation for a match that I think really needs it. I thought it was astutely, quietly astute. Um, in the absence of the kind of impossible scenario of creating a three-way match where there's all of these complex relationships between the three people involved. You know, it pisses me off in retrospect, right? I know they wanted to hold off doing uh, the books and FTR in a first-time meeting as a three-way. It kind of pisses me off in retrospect, given how impeccably they'd booked a three-way feud between FTR, 
books and a Megram page and they didn't do that all out. I just, why didn't you do that? You've flexed so tremendously well by doing the impossible and booking an effective three-way feud. The fact that that was so great and it was so, it's just hard, it's so hard to do. I was so jazzed by the booking of those six people throughout the summer of 2020 because it was impossible. You just can't really do it. And yet they found a way to do it. In the absence of doing that, because it's so goddamn difficult, I really enjoyed how they basically have pivoted from the injury and what they've done. Instead of creating an organic three-way conflict, which is virtually impossible, as I keep mentioning, is that they put over the other two people in one segment. I thought this was really economical. I'm not going to use the D word necessarily, but I thought it was really resourceful, economical booking, feeding off on what had happened the previous week. You basically got Pac, who... What they did as well that I thought was really clever was that Kenny Omega went, have you seen the execution on that? Like, what was wrong with it? There was nothing wrong with it at all. He's not dangerous. We're not mining a cheap brand of heat. We're not exposing him to the people who know better as someone who's dangerous. Like, if you look at that, it's perfect. What was your problem? So what you've done is you've put over Pac as this incredibly skilled guy who can do enormous damage to his opponent by doing what he does and not like taking it too far. Mm. And through the comedy of... Orange Cassidy just slowly separating that was the perfectly in-character way of saying, right, okay, yeah, I've taken my lumps, but I'm just going to keep fighting back, but in his own distinct, unique way. And I thought this was a really good segment, a really good segment, not something that has got me totally fired up for a goddamn match, like Moxley and Kingston basically getting themselves in this headspace where they are just having this, they're going to kill each other because it's the only thing they can do. Obviously, it was nowhere near that level. I will await next week for something like that. But now I thought this is really quite clever. Then it was time for the inner circle to respond to the, uh, the challenge from the pinnacle regarding stadium at stampede. Uh, no Santana, of course he wasn't there for last week's tapings uh, due to illness. Uh, so there's four of them or uh, Ortiz speaks first. He basically just says talk is cheap and he is ready to fight. Sammy Guevara says everyone knows what his answer is going to be. He's going to spray him with bubbly or he's going to hit a shooting stop press off the balcony onto their necks. Uh, Jake Hager says they will be schoolyard bitches if they don't accept uh, and then Chris Jericho gets on the mic. He says, uh, the pinnacle of their head so far up their ass, they can't hear very well. He heard them loud, they're clear, and their challenge for Stadium Stampede. And he's not sure it's worth it. Thinks about the toll that Blood and Guts took on all of them, all 10 of them, the pieces of themselves they left in that ring that they'll never get back. Uh, MJF hurt him, not just physically, because that stuff will heal, but with the mental image of being thrown off the top of the cage, the most terrifying moment of his life that will never go away. Was it worth it? Well, the answer, only answer he has is when he thinks of the revenge he's going to get when he's going to break MJF's nose and punch him in the face over and over again. They accept the challenge on May 30th. Hell is coming for the pinnacle and the inner circle is going to dance all over their face and piss all over their grave. And I really like the touch of them all flipping off the camera and Ortiz throwing up two, one for Santana in his absence, of course. Uh, Sige, we're set for Stadium Stampede too, mate. We are. I was more hyped for Blood and Guts on the back of those promos than I was um, for Stadium Stampede. They can do something next week, of course. I thought this was mostly fine. Some of Jericho's words felt like I was looking at them on a page rather than hearing them come out passionately out of someone's mouth as a real person. Um, And yet, even Chris Jericho's not the best material, which I don't think this was, 
Ortiz was awesome, by the way. Mm. Ortiz and Santana have got this unbelievable knack of projecting such brilliant, hard bastard who you really want to root for qualities that they can just say things that most performers can't in five minutes and they can do it in like two or three sentences. They're just outstanding. And I need to see way more from them whenever this feud does in fact end. Jericho's promo was okay. I felt like he was reaching for a certain gravitas that just was kind of impossible to actually realize considering that we saw the metal painted cardboard and it was just a error on the part of the production, which we've labored over plenty of times. But again, he knows the psychology of cutting a goddamn wrestling promo. And even when, right, okay, this isn't that great. This isn't that great. This isn't that great. He picks an absolute killer final line and emphasizes it strongly. And it's piss on your grave. Min, an awesome thing to say. What an awesome way to deliver it. And that's going to be my abiding memory of this promo, which otherwise wasn't on the caliber of his blood and guts material. Yeah, I kind of want to like <clears throat> credit Chris Jericho specifically with taking something that really I just thought was guys saying stuff to Chris Jericho, like actually selling the magnitude of a fight as a pro wrestler, selling the fight of a pay-per-view, obviously, but selling why he wants to have the fight. Um, otherwise, um, you know, like deliveries were all decent. This echoed for me when we're critical of like Pete Dunn saying, I want a number one contenders match. And it's like, well, you can't. You like you lost all your title shots. It's like, oh, the things we're going to do at the pinnacle. You, you didn't. Like you had your chance in the big match where you were supposed to do all that stuff and you lost. Like it's like it all felt quite hollow. Um, and then I thought Jericho, and again, like whilst he whilst the words didn't have gravitas, like I wasn't believing the gravitas he was trying to install in it. I kind of he has gravitas. So by the end, I'm kind of with him again. Like that's the value of Chris Jericho at this point that someone like um, a Jake Hager couldn't do earlier in this piece. Like I know they always play for laughs with Jake Hager, and you know there's an odd bitch thrown around, and we talked about that word being bastardized. It almost never odd bitch. <laughs> Schoolgirls bitch, you know whatever the hell it was. Like there's no gravitas to any of that. Um, and again, because they've had it, they've had the cage match and they lost it. And that was the one that we were supposed to think was like the end of the world. Um, but Jericho does Jericho does have the gravitas. And I think by the end, he just about just about pulled this round. Um, not like a banner week for this feud or mm. this program. But yeah, like I, I do have faith in Stadium Stampede too. I feel tremendously better about it than I did last week. So I think that probably speaks to its success. Uh, another promo uh, backstage interview with, with Jade Cargill. Uh, Tony Schwanny puts her over as the biggest or hottest, I should say, free agent in AEW. Uh, and before she can answer the question about who her new manager is going to be, in comes the lawyer Mark Sterling, who said, "Look, you know, other people want you to want you know want to you to join them. I want to join you. I want to represent you. Uh, it should be Team Jade. It should be all about her." Uh, and Jay Cargill says, well, the first thing you should know about me is you shouldn't bloody interrupt me. She sends him away and then asks Tony who the hell that guy was. And then we got the NWA Women's World Title match, Serena D versus Red Velvet. I really enjoyed this, Hamlet. What did you make of it? Brilliant, man. It was absolutely brilliant. My favourite thing on the show, Serena Deeb. Um, we always heap praise on her and it's for reasons like this specific mm. match. Um, how, like, the way her submission game like it stresses me out thinking of her being a coach and in WWE and having to teach WWE TV match style to not quite ready trainees 
when this is how she wrestles. Like she ties people up in knots. She erodes not just body parts and muscles, but like a wrestler's confidence. So much so that when like you like a spunky baby face like Red Velvet powers out, like that comeback is all the more enhanced for the damage you've watched them sustain over the course of like seven or eight grueling minutes. And this is pretty much the pattern of most Serena Deeb matches. And she can do it as a heel and a babyface. She's absolutely brilliant. I don't want to like undermine Red Velvet's performance in this because I do think like she brings something really quite special to every match. The Jungle Boy comparison from Sidgwick yesterday was so apt. Like they've got that same just underneath bubbling under babyface quality that you can't wait to see like the caterpillar become the butterfly. Like and, and that time will come and you love watching the process. Serena Deeb was a perfect wrestler if you get to see a bit more of Red Velvet's process. This was just like a luxurious television, like pro wrestling television match. Couldn't get enough of this. Didn't outstay its welcome at all as well. Like such a well-earned tap out as well. Um, we know that WWE often are still scared to make their baby faces tap. And they shouldn't be. Just work for it. Just earn it like Serena Deeb. Loved this. This was great. This was exactly what I thought was going to be on the preview yesterday. Serena Deeb is so great at maximising the qualities of a performer. Like, there's an argument to be made that measured against a certain and very specific criteria that Serena Deeb is one of the best wrestlers in the world. Mm. Like, you can't just do this and it'd be like, all right, great, man. No, there's something more to how great she is that doesn't really... To be fair, I did see a lot of it on Twitter. Like, in terms of the way she can pace a match and she can project within the match just how great a wrestler she is, that she's just the absolute purveyor of the rub. This is a very lofty comparison, and I don't think she's that good. But again, the systemic institutional misogyny of pro wrestling, unfortunately, means you might not know. Who the hell knows? She probably could have been. She, in every single match she works, reminds me of one of my favorite individual wrestling performances of all time, and that was Daniel Bryan versus Kofi Kingston at WrestleMania 35. There was such a brilliance to Daniel Bryan's performance at WrestleMania 35, right? Where to tell the story of, to condense it and do it in the match where accounts of Kofi Kingston's 11-year struggle, he just simply performed as one of the most dominant, impossible like puzzles of a pro wrestler. And it just resonated all the more when Kofi Kingston overcame it. And on a micro level, Serena Deeb kind of, does that kind of performance, which is so hard. Oh, what I'm going to do is for nine minutes, I'm just going to look like the best wrestler on the planet, the best in my field, and you're going to look amazing for taking me somewhere near my limit. She does this every time she's in the ring on Dynamite. She's outstanding. And to make another comparison before we move on, every quality that AEW signed Christian for, right, what you're going to do is you're going to be a purveyor of a great TV match. You've got an audience. Serena Deeb doesn't have one, yet she's getting one very quickly you're going to be a player coach and you're going to put on these great TV matches, but they're going to serve a way higher purpose. That's only going to be apparent two, three, four years down the line when the people you work with become great. And with Christian, sometimes it's like, well, it hasn't happened yet because he's been working guys from his era. But the the thinking is, is that that's what's going to happen. Serena Deeb is doing that right now. She's a player coach and there's zero zero negative connotations to that. She's amazing. Then this match was excellent. And I would have a work in dark elevation every single week, at least. Mm. 
Yeah, Deeb started it off straight away, just attacking uh, Velvet uh, after, immediately after the bell, uh, just to fill you in on what happened in the match. Velvet makes a comeback after the ad break. Uh, double knees to the back, standing moonsault for a two count. Uh, chucks Deeb out to the floor, hits a moonsault off the apron as well. Then Velvet goes for a moonsault off the top when she gets her back in, but Deeb gets her knees up, hits a power bomb for a great near fall. Deeb puts her in a half crab. Velvet reverses into an inside cradle for a two count there. And then Deeb just targets Velvet's left leg, just batters it, uh, eventually gets the submission victory via the Serenity Lock. But yeah, without question, the best match on AEW Dynamite this week, in my opinion. Uh, then we got a Pac promo with Marvez. Uh, Pac says he's tired of missing opportunities in AEW. He's got his world title match now, and there's nothing that Omega, Callis, the Young Bucks, or any, the, any of those elitist pricks can do about it. And he asked what fool would bet against the bastard at double or nothing. And that was followed, Michael Sidgwick, by Anthony Agogo murdering Austin Gunn. He hit him so hard, he got internal bleeding. Basically, uh, immediately as the bell rings, Gunn hits a shotgun drop kick, right hands, blockbuster. He's, he's sending Agogo all over the place, but Agogo recovers. Gut punch, another body blow when he's in the ropes. Uh, Austin Gunn sort of collapses, but doesn't let the referee call it. Commentary, commentary makes a lot about suddenly realizing that the blood that is on both men is coming from inside Austin Gunn, effectively. Uh, and then Anthony Gogo grabs Austin Gunn by the wrist. And I saw it described somewhere as a pop up haymaker, which is a wonderful description. Beats, uh, beats Austin Gunn, obviously, and then teases, I think, spitting on the American flag. Uh, Cody's uh, Cody jumps in the referee jump in they keep them separate uh, the factory and the nightmare family but yeah I thought this was a great progression of the stories we head towards Cody versus a go-go at double or nothing Sige quick note on Pac I, I, I realise why he's cut this promo as he has because the impromptu audible events of last week have sort of taken the story in a direction that they probably didn't want to take. Mm. I don't really like any overtones. I hate the word opportunity in pro wrestling. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. Archer's done it, Pac's done it, everyone in WWE roster does it. I don't like it. Um, so I didn't like it when Pac did it here because I'm a consistent fucking critic. I did, however, not just in itself, the line elitist pricks, but as far as I can see, no one has yet made that connection between elite and elitist. Mm. And I just really like that because that's what they've become. That's what they've become. And I just think that it's a really neat line from Pac. It was content versus delivery, that promo, but it was what it was. The moment where I thought, where's that blood coming from on Google? Because you know about his eye. Mm. Yeah, I thought that. And you thought, oh my God, is his big comeback ruined before his big match of double or nothing? Was it a risk to put him in? And then... I don't know if it was like a blood capsule or what. I hope it was. I really hope it was. Yeah. It probably was. It more likely than not was because they saw it so much on commentary. But the, the, oh, it's not his blood. Oh, the reason why it's not his blood is because why would Austin Gunn make him bleed? He's Anthony a go go. He will make, <laughs> he's, he's threatening to make Cody's arsehole bleed. <laughs> what he's doing. Just, I thought it was such an incredible storytelling detail here. Like, oh, that's where the blood's gone. Oh, camera to Austin Gunn. Oh, he's knackered. Oh, he's got an even more killer finish than the one that's already established as a killer. How on earth is Cody Rhodes going to overcome that, let alone that? Just a great, like, you can do a good squash. It's the easiest genre of match to do, right? You can just 
kill someone much smaller than you and it looks great. This was like one of the most detailed, like inspired squashes I've seen in quite some time. Yeah. They continue to just get this, like the way to physically present Anthony are absolutely spot on. Like the look gets better. Like just a little added details every week. Um, like he's advancing at a quicker rate than I think most people would have thought, but it's just so pleasing to watch because he owns it, you know, and it, he, he believe it. Um, I just, I wish they'd not started what they started last week, really. Like I, the angle is the angle now, this US-UK thing. It's so frivolous and I, I don't like it. I, I don't like it's the, I'm not, Waving a Union Jack to support Anthony Gogo. I just think Anthony Gogo's class, right? So, like, I want to see Anthony Gogo, like, cave Cody's stomach in because I think he's brilliant. Not because I want him to do it wearing a boxing glove that's got the Union flag on it or something like that. I, I just, like, it. the patriotism side of it is so needless. I heard something or read something about Cody wanting the copyright to American Dream to be able to use. And I feel like he's introduced it into like the vernacular of AW for the purposes of that, right? So be it, like go and get your copyright. It's more yours than theirs. So, you, you know, you should get that one and find a way to do it. And if this is a way to do it, fine. I like, I just, I really, really don't like it as the icing on the cake. They did such a good job building up the factory. QT Marshall's motivations for all of this. And then he's got in on his side of the training school, the most dangerous man of the bunch in Anthony Agogo. Cody should be fearing that. And they absolutely cannot pull away from the patriotic stuff. Um, and from, you know, I know Twitter's this tiny percentage, but there are plenty of people tweeting, I'm American, but I'm supporting Anthony Agogo. So if anything, they've done too good a job um, of presenting Agogo and Cody's promo was maybe more divisive than they would have liked. Because there's plenty of people in America that don't need that divisive rhetoric being thrown in the face on a wrestling show when they've had a president that kind of swore by it for the last four years. Mm. Um so, like, I do consider that a failure. And, like, Agogo has to win now for me at Double Nothing for more than just the fact that the last times that Cody's beaten the guy in the big match, the guy slid down the card fairly aggressively. Agogo shouldn't have that slide. He should he should beat Cody and he should move on to the next thing. And I hope this differs from the, the Cody and Archers and the Cody Brody payoff and stuff like that. I, like, I think this is an opportunity here for Cody to, like, put somebody over massive... And Anthony Agogo. Mm. Um, I, I really wish we didn't have this, the flag set dressing. Like, really wish it wasn't there because they've done such a good job of building everything else. Have you guys seen, I only just noticed it this week, the the Agogo logo? Oh, there's the Olympic rings. Unbelievable. Like, branding of the, like, just of the highest order. Like, WWE haven't got something as good as them in the locker and they're supposed to be the industry leader at this sort of thing. Like, amazing. Yeah, if you want to see it, I'll I'll tweet it out at Adam Wilborn later on today because I just it, I just I saw it this morning and went, oh my god, because I just seen him from afar and he's like, oh, he's got the Olympic rings on there. Catching not- those yank likes when they wake up as well. That's good Twitter strategy. <laughs> Thank you. I approve of it. You if you got you save your best tweets for three four p.m. UK time. <laughs> a little, little tip, little tip to build your follower base. <laughs> right, uh, we had uh, a promo with the. I suppose the group formerly known as SCU. Uh, Marvez was with Daniels and Chris Kazarian. Jesus, Christopher Daniels' face is messed up after that rough bump last week that he took. Um, Marvez was asking Christopher Daniels to explain his tweet about potentially 
retiring, considering I see you are no more. Daniels didn't say anything. He just shook hands with Kazarian and whispered something as he left. Kaz said he didn't have the words to say what Chris has meant to him personally and professionally. Obviously, he wasn't going to say what he just whispered to him either. Um, he doesn't know what path Daniels is on, but he knows where he's going. He's blaming the whole of the elite. He's going to hunt them down member by member and teach them what it feels like to have your heart ripped out of your chest he's a bomb you can't defuse a gun you can't unload that is a promise not a threat that is the gospel according to frankie kazarian i have is frankie kazarian becoming the punisher i thought this was great very possibly because i thought this was brilliant i am probably more critical than i am full of praise when aw tries to do profound um often i think it fails i think they did a really good job of like achieving some profundity with the SCU split here. Um, so much so that it felt a bit like a make good from last week. Like really, really bought whatever message it was that Christopher Daniels was leaving behind for Kaz. And that like totally, totally like bit on Kaz's motivation to go through them one by one. Interesting. Obviously, Cedric mentioned about pack uh, promo as well. Like the elite are making enemies and that's great for like, obviously for all elite wrestling. Um not least with Cody and Hangman Page, barely even on the fringes of that anymore. Kenny and the Young Bucks are making enemies. That's always great because that's how you top. That's what how it should feel like when you've got like a top heel group. They got a lot of they need to be looking over the shoulder all the time because they've like made some pretty powerful enemies. So I just love this. Really, really like this. Um, and after last week, wasn't really prepared to expect much in the way of follow up for SCU right now. Um, I hope that this isn't yet another like false dawn of an angle being kicked off and then not being followed through with and it all like or like the, the, us tell it like Tony Schiavone you should have seen what Kazarian's been doing to some Young Bucks posters on Dark it's like oh cool like because uh, I was like massively fired up for Kaz after this I thought the promo was so strong that it allowed me to do some headcanon which I think is generous and I'll explain why his tone and his words made it seem as if those awful EVP young books had put SCU's career on the line just to be dicks and get them out of the picture or whatever. That was, that's not really the case. Mm. My understanding is that Kazarian was getting a little bit pissed off at the turn of the year and was like setting a challenge to Daniels. Like, come on, I know you're old, but like, <laughs> this is the end of the line for you and prove to me that it isn't by winning the tag team titles. And if we miss a single step, then it's all over. So it's like, I can buy that in the moment, he kind of regrets doing that. And the fact that when it actually happened, he realized, oh Christ, I really miss him. I probably shouldn't have done that stipulation or whatever. But realistically, he was like, so I was torn away from me. It's like, well, you did it. It's your idea. <laughs> so that was a bit of a, uh, I didn't really like that element of it. Um, but Kenny Omega, being Kenny Omega, it's just, oh, Kazarian's going to be the last skull. He's going to go through... And it's going to happen on Dark, Hamlet. Just watch Dark. <laughs> Christ. No, they did actually do some recaps of Dark on their show as well, which I've been crying out for for ages, which is about time. But he's going to go through Nakazawa on Dark. He's going to go through Cutler on Dark. And Kenny Omega has lined up yet another match between this three-way and Page. Got Christian Cage, who's probably going to win the casino. He's got an Eddie Kingston singles match. Um, and now he's got Kazarian on some kind of TV special, which they can call, I don't know, July Jammin. One of their lame names. <laughs> <laughs> they, do, they do lame names for the TV. I'm sorry. They do. I love AW. I'm the AW guy. But they do. <laughs> they 
July, July jamming, whatever. They do lame names to the TV specials and Battle of the Belts should correct this, one would hope. Yes. Uh, speaking of good promos, Miro came out and thanked God and Jesus Christ for letting him murder people, basically. <laughs> he technically said they gave him the strength and aggression to beat everybody up. But well, we got where he's going for. Uh, he said that's his talent, but that's not Darby Allen's talent. Uh, after all the crap he'd been, uh, after talking all that crap, he beat him up so bad that he took the title and everybody doesn't, uh, and uh, it doesn't matter who you are. If you have what Miro wants, you're done. Everybody knows that now, basically. He said, uh, he said, go home, make another one of your gritty student videos. And next week, live on Dynamite, somebody's getting an opportunity for his title. And he's going to destroy them over and over again. We subsequently found out that was going to be Dante Martin. Good luck, mate. Uh, out comes Lance Archer, flanked by Jake Roberts, of course. Lance said he's been a monster in AEW since Miro was still trying to have his own day. Uh, he said make, he's going to make Miro his Bulgarian bitch at double or nothing. They're going to have a monster fight that hasn't been seen since Godzilla versus Kong. And Miro goes, oh, never heard that one before. Uh, he says Lance Archer's, uh brings an old man there to hold him back. You better pray to God he stays away because there ain't enough yoga in the world to bring Roberts back if he crosses Miro. Everybody dies, he says. Well, you better be ready to be the first. Scorched earth from Miro here, Hamlet. I um, almost to Archer's detriment, I think. Um, Bulgarian bitch felt like the last act of a desperate man. Um, I like Miro was Miro was on unreal form here. He was feeling himself, wasn't he? And like, I love that. I love that. That's what like fundamentally talk about this a lot. That's what AEW provides provides a stage for the best performers to go and be the best versions of themselves. Miro is clearly in that zone at the moment, as Archer once was, and now he isn't. Um, I'm looking forward to the match, as long as it's an outstate's welcome on the night. But it, it was like more apparent than I've ever seen that like Miro felt like he was outclassing Archer here, um, almost to the extent that I don't feel like Archer's on his level. And this is one of the most predictable matches at Double or Nothing. Um, Miro was fantastic though I don't think it's predictable because it's I've never said this about AEW but I just can Archer withstand another loss like this I he's going to go away afterwards I think he'll, he'll, I think he'll like just disappear from like this kind of scene after the fact semi-regular maybe or something I don't know they are doing two shows in Texas when they first come back live it would be silly not to feature him on them quite heavily and it's the yeah. nice company that does nice things. So I've always got that mm-hmm. in the back of my mind when it comes to this match. Miro was great in the zone, is exactly right. And um, he feels like he's full of confidence. He's met the booking, which is so important because they've done everything for him over the past month. And he's just delivered an absolutely great promo with like a screenwriter's guile in terms of how to get words over and phrases and threats and stuff over, like with a tiny little amount of time. He outclassed Archer on the mic. That can't go without saying, but the little glint Archer had in his eye when he put over the match, and he did, Miro put himself over as a killer. And I think in contrast, maybe to the character's detriment, but Archer's, the little glint in his eye when he said, like, we are going to have fun, like beating the shit out of each other as two monsters. Like that made me think, all right, he's probably been, fantasy book in this head this match in his head the second Tony Khan told him it was going to happen mm. so yeah I liked all this I thought it was a really strong segment 
Uh, they announced the card for next week. Just lots of stuff to look forward to next week. Like I said, it's going to be moved to Friday. It's go home show sort of thing. So holding some stuff back for Sunday, of course. We've got a TNT Championship match, as I mentioned, Miro versus Dante Martin. Page, Hangman Page, that is, uh, versus Joey Janela. The weigh-in for Cody Rhodes and Hanson Hicks. A go-go. Uh, an open challenge from Jade Cargill. Uh, Evil Uno, Stu Grayson, Scorpio Sky, Ethan Page. We've got Darby Allen, Cesar Bononi. Orange Cassidy responding to Kenny Omega's offer. Uh, an announcement for the buy-in match. Double or nothing. A celebration of Hikaru Shida's first anniversary as AEW World, Women's World Champion before she drops the belt. <laughs> and the Inner Circle celebrating their greatest moments. So still lots to look forward to next week. And I better remember that it's on Friday because I definitely will forget and go, right, lads, should we do the uh, AW? Oh, it's Wednesday, Adam. Okay, fair enough. Uh, right, let's move to the main event. It was the Young Bucks versus the Varsity Blondes, who were accompanied, of course, by Julia Hart. The reason why I mentioned that will become obvious as I get into this. Um, it's fair play. Nick uh, Jackson immediately just sold wonderfully for, for Pillman and Garrison from the start. Eventually, uh, Pillman gets cut off. The Bucks go to work on his back, uh, take control. Nick comes back in, rope walks, stomp to uh, to Brian Pillman. Uh, he dies on Gris Garrison and they pose as we go to a break. They've got a ridiculous outfit on, which I'm sure Sid will allude to in a minute. Um, Garrison comes in uh, after the break, runs wild, hip tosses, corner clothesline, double spear, plancher. Uh, he goes for a superpower bomb. The books block it and they hit Pillman uh, with kicks to the back as well. Pillman then hits a super kick for a great near fall on Nick Jackson. Matt then blind tags in, sharpshooter on Pillman. Uh, Nick hits a super kick on Griff and then feigns the leg injury to distract distract the referee. Matt uh, gets the spray, um, but Julia Hart gets for its attention and takes it away. And then they get another spray and he sprays Hart in her eyes with it. Near fall, double leg, sharpshooter on Pillman. Uh, Nick adds an X factor and dives on Griff Garrison. Uh, and despite the fact that, uh, that all this was trying to be broken up, eventually uh, Pillman taps out the Young Bucks, retain the tag titles. Of course they do through shenanigans and uh, ice spray, or whatever it is, uh, plenty. Post-match outcomes. The now number one contenders uh, is, uh, of course, Eddie Kingston and John Moxley. Eddie bites him. <laughs> I think it's Nick's ear. He just bites uh, whilst John attacks Matt Jackson. They choke both of them out and then to add insult to injury, they steal their $10,000 Dior shoes uh, and they announced, confirmed that Moxie and Kingston, uh, actually, they didn't just steal the shoes. I think, if I remember rightly, Kingston stole the socks as well. <laughs> but they announced the match official for double or nothing, and they pose on the stage with their new prizes to close out the show. Oh, what a conclusion, Sitch. I wasn't blown away by the match, which might indict the Varsity Blondes at the level they're at at the moment, because... If you can't have a four-star TV match of the Young Bucks with all that time, I th- it was really good at points. I thought the finish, the way that all that was constructed, was amazing. I was blown away by the, just the sheer amount of creativity in the Young Bucks and just how much they are radiating the fact that they are absolutely loving operating in this mode. Michael Nakazawa is a Bret Hart kid. <laughs> Unbelievable! Like what a possibly entertaining little dickhead Nakazawa is. I love him. Um. And they are so clever. They are so goddamn clever, the Young Bucks, because what they've done is their mates have pilmanized Eddie Kingston's ankle, which Eddie Kingston 
continues to sell as something that he's possibly not 100% recovered from because Eddie Kingston is a phenomenal professional wrestler in terms of the stuff that you can't teach. And they tapped out Pillman Jr. at the finish, which is a horrendous way to go out because we know how it's um, framed in pro wrestling vernacular, what it means to get tapped out. Tapping out on the week of your dark side of the ring stuff. Great heel stuff, great heel stuff. Mm -hmm. But again, these are very clever people telling a very good story. Eddie Kingston is going to get trapped in that sharpshooter at double or nothing in front of the first major crowd since he debuted in AEW and finally got what he's deserved for 20 years. Do you don't think that spot is going to be unbelievable when it happens? And now it's informed as something that could conceivably end the match when you don't want them to. You want Kingston Moxley to win this match, right? And they've just beautifully, deftly added a story beat and enriched it through this TV match. Unbelievable stuff. They are so clever and it's so rewarding to watch them build, build, build these matches. The spray in the eyes was just fantastic. Hmm. The perfect way to do that kind of strain of heat because it's water. It's water. That's what it is. It's worked. It's gimmicked. It's water. And it's fine. It's got that, oh, you can't do that, old woman. But, oh, of course you can. It's water. Like, the perfect kind of work wrestling stuff. Brilliant. What else is brilliant is the shoes. The shoes. Not only is it so wonderful that the Young Bucks whole thing over the past was they used to show off that they made money because like, oh, people make money in the indies now. I thought it was just this drab, depressing thing. Oh, what does it look like? I never would have fancied it because it's a high school gym. That's how clever the Young Bucks are, right? It's a great bit now, not just showing off that they make money, they now wear money because they are even richer. It's great, great character progression. John Moxley has been on Renee Young's podcast talking about how he used to just steal stuff. He did, because it was fun and he had an out. Eddie Kingston's probably done the exact same thing. In fact, he's probably admitted to do the exact same thing. And now they're stealing the shoes and the Young Bucks deserve it. This feud is amazing. And I don't think it's getting talked about enough is how amazing and detailed this feud is, how much these people, were they real, hate each other, want to fight. I'm in love with this feud. And it's the match I'm most looking forward to by some distance of double or nothing. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Um, in, like including the assessment of the match, truthfully. I, I, I was thinking that same thing about the, maybe like the private party match as an example. It's like, I'll, like look what the Young Bucks can do for the, uh, in terms of elevating a team for the for the aura of a, a relatively new tag team. And I didn't really get that here, but I am, yeah, head over heels in love with the the big angle, the, the John Moxley, Eddie Kingston story. Um, it's a great feud because ultimately coming off of Revolution, the big match, the way he spun off everything that had happened with both Revolution and the post-Revolution Dynamite was Eddie Kingston versus Kenny Omega. That, that felt like the direction. And that hasn't necessarily been abandoned because the Young Bucks, Kenny Omega's best mate. So that's all still there to use. But they've found a way to make... Because the Young Bucks weren't even heels, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. They weren't yet heels, were they, coming off the back of Revolution? So it's quite something that they've made the Young Bucks versus Kingston and Moxley feel as powerful as Kingston versus Omega first felt. Like, I think that's quite... Like, it's quite impressive. It's considering how many people you've had to draw in to make that work. Um... It's it's genuinely impressive work. It's Don Callis is such a valuable addition to this presentation of the Young Bucks on commentary as well. 
you know, like I think it's important to mention how useful he is on commentary to look, the young books are amazing physical storytellers. They don't need a like a mouthpiece on the headset constantly being like their carnival barker. But it's like it's like it's bullshit on top of bollocks in the good way. It's like oh the chandelier headbands, the Dior's, uh the spraying um a woman in the face. Like and also you've got your own personal mouthpiece doing it as well. Like there is sometimes a time where the more you can add to that, the better it gets. Um, they can't do enough to just show how obnoxious they are. And I just think like that's a, that, because he was commentating on the last Young Bucks tag, I think as well, where you got like the same impact. It was the, yeah, it was the SCU one, where it was just like all that awful stuff that was happening. And Callis was still there being this ridiculous, obnoxious cheerleader for them, defending their every move as an act of like a righteous act and mm. things like that. It's just more, 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 more in a way. And like, yeah, that's kind of like how the Young Bucks matches have always been styled. Oh, you don't think we can do more, more, more? We can because we can change the way that it's been done. Massive. So I really like, yeah, like I really like that as an addition to their act. Um, it's, is it the biggest match at Double or Nothing? Because like, it sort of feels like it, like they've, they've ended Dynamite with it. I, I don't think you could main event the pay-per-view with it because I've, my gut is they're going to go Stadium Stampede 2, actually, because mm. the, the, the Omega match doesn't feel like the one. This in terms of the prestige of the titles, the loyalty to the story, and how like unpredictable it is. I think this is the biggest match of the pay-per-view. It's the one I'm most hyped for. Mm. It's the story I've invested in the most. It's the one that hasn't stuttered along the way since the minute that the books have turned heel. The dynamic is fabulous. Fabulous. Like, I just... I'll be heartbroken if Mox and Kingston don't win. I'm kind of anxious to see how they will handle the fact that they don't. What act of cruelty will it take? Intrigued, but fascinated. And I want to see Antonio Gogo do it for the Brits. Uh, But let us know your thoughts on the back of AEW Dynamite on Twitter at WhatCultureWWE. Well, actually, you can follow all three of us. You can follow Michael Hamflit at... Michael Hamflit. Follow Michael Sidgwick at... M. Sidgwick. Follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at What Culture WB, of course. And make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling, wherever you get your podcasts from, for daily wrestling podcasts, where myself and Michael Sidgwick will probably be talking this weekend about the madness that is AEW Rampage, AEW moving channels, AEW getting a, what was it, a nine figures, 10 figure deal, something ridiculous like that from Warner Media off the back of it. Lots of money. Yes incredible we'll talk more about that over the weekend so make sure you subscribe to what culture wrestling to get that one um and daily wrestling podcasts and make sure you leave us a nice review watch you're there too but for now this has been the aw dynamite review my thanks to the dadly boys thank you for joining us and we will see you soon hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.